And open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. Last week, I know many of you were still traveling, and, and we have more of a full house here today. And we touched on a new concept last week. It's really an old concept. It just hasn't been talked about in the church of recent years or even decades. And it's the topic of happiness. We saw from the Bible that this is a biblical concept, but because of the way translators through the centuries have translated the Hebrew and Greek words for happy, we end up with the words blessed. And we've come to think of happiness almost as um, a counterfeit goal. That if we pursue happiness, we'll just fall into temptation and sin. Our goal ought to be holiness and joy. And certainly our goals are holiness and joy. But where the Bible uses the word happy, we ought to use that word. And we also saw through the centuries that the great Christian writers have all written on this topic. And all of them agree that it is the driving force, the chief motivator behind all of our hearts. We all want happiness. Look at the decisions we make, the things we buy, where we spend our time. Even if you think it's not about happiness, I can demonstrate to you that by doing that or thinking that or or chasing after that, ultimately, deep down, you think it will bring happiness, satisfaction, joy. Certainly, to be blessed by God is a good word, too. But it almost sounds like over the last few decades in evangelicalism, we've gotten the idea that God doesn't want you to be happy. And so we know God wants us to be holy and He wants to bless us, but if we divorce happiness from these concepts, then deep down in places we don't like to talk about out loud, it doesn't sound that exciting to be a Christian. Can you imagine telling people outside the church who know nothing about God, come to Jesus, will I be happy? No. No. But you'll be holy. You're making it sound like exactly what the unbelieving world thinks. Happiness is outside the church. So when I'm done being happy and pursuing happiness, I guess I'll grow up and come to the church and be an adult who's sober-minded and serious. But there's nothing contradictory about being sober-minded and serious and being happy. I think the deeper you get into your walk with the Lord, the more you find that the true happiness you were looking for comes with that maturity and sobriety. So yes, there is a type of happiness that is temporary. It's meeting those immediate needs for gratification, but as you live life, you start to recognize that kind of happiness is empty. It's fleeting. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's like a vapor. You're chasing after the wind. Your favorite ball team wins, but 
Within a few hours, you're already thinking about the next game. You make a great purchase and bring it home, and you're happy for a few minutes, and then you're thinking about the next purchase. And how terrible when people move from relationship to relationship. Though we made the argument last week, again, that evangelicalism has somehow marked happiness as some kind of counterfeit emotion. So, rightly understood, I can preach biblically that God wants you to be happy. This is good news for all of us. It's kind of a relief for a lot of you. Really? I can be happy? Not apart from God and not apart from His will and not apart from obeying His commands. Oh, well, therein lies the problem. The fact that your attitude just said, Oh, I thought I could be happy pursuing my dreams and my ideas and the things that bring me instant gratification. In an affluent society, in a secular society like the one we live in, it is tempting, more tempting than ever, to pursue happiness apart from God. The world's not encouraging us to pursue God. The world is encouraging us to pursue happiness at all costs. And yet, nobody seems to have the courage or conviction to stand up and point out that the emperor is wearing no clothes. We've been pursuing this happiness in this culture for so long apart from God, and nobody's happy. We lived in the, the most depressed culture in history. Where we live in the most affluent culture in the history of the world, meaning the most prosperous, and yet the number one complaint from people to their physicians and their psychologists and counselors is, I'm not happy. I can't find happiness. And so instead of listening to God, we go back out and try to find happiness in the last place we left it. But the solution isn't to make happiness the villain. That's a fool's errand to say, okay, here's what you all need to do this morning, people. Stop wanting to be happy. Well, good luck with that. You can pretend that you don't want to be happy, but you're lying to yourself. Some people find happiness in being grumpy. Trust me, they're being grumpy because it makes them happy. It's kind of a sick, twisted, perverted happiness, but it's a happiness nonetheless. Some people find happiness in complaining. And they say, well, how dare you say I'm pursuing happiness? Does it look like I'm pursuing happiness? Well, you keep doing it all the time. It must make you happy. Some kind of positive reinforcement is happening. So when we get to this part of our text, very appropriate for who we are in the culture we live in. Because by the time Solomon comes to sit on the throne, Israel is poised for great prosperity. David has, through God's help, taken care of most of Israel's external enemies. And if you read 1 Kings 1 
up to chapter 3, Solomon one by one eliminates the internal enemies. And so there's unification in Israel. There's great natural resources. They have the true God as their God. It's all set now and ripe for great prosperity and happiness that everybody's been waiting for. But isn't it also ripe for everybody going off and pursuing happiness in the wrong places? I have found in my life, and maybe you too, that I sometimes do much better when there's a lot of trials in my life. When all the trials go away, you'd think you would use that time to go, okay, now we can finally get down to doing God's business. But you're kind of like, well, let's rest first. And before you know it, you're, you're way off the path. This happens at the beginning of the year. New year, optimism, turn over a new leaf, New Year's resolutions, and like Matt Sheridan told us last week, and then you wake up from the dream. And you realize it's March, and I've done nothing. December was so busy, and I was so tired that I just needed to catch my breath. And you never end up actually fulfilling your plans. And you get to the end of March, and before you know it, you're like, well, there's no point in starting now, because June's right around the corner, and summer and vacations, so you just try to go on cruise control. Life on cruise control never turns out really well. Right? Have you experienced that? Neutral's not a good gear to put your car in. So we can learn from Solomon the correct way to approach life, especially here we are, new year, new opportunity, new chances to kind of start fresh. I think our our church is poised to do great things, great unity. Staff really likes each other. The elders, unified, humble men, love each other. Nobody has some separate agenda. Healthy budget. Good, healthy ministries that, for the most part, are are well-staffed. So the temptation is to go on cruise control when really God has blessed us in such a way that we can really move forward. We don't have any excuse for saying, well, we've, we've got to stop and we've got to take care of all this mess over here. There's not a lot of mess going on right now. So let's see how Solomon approaches a similar situation. Let's start in 1 Kings uh, 3, chapter, uh, verse 6. First, Solomon's going to go to God in prayer. That's a good start. What do you think? Good start? Good start. Okay, Solomon's going to appeal to God's promises and God's character in his prayer. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. 
Now let's pause there. Wait a minute. Is this the same David that committed adultery and murder and then tried to cover it up? Yes, Solomon is talking about the same David. That's his father. I, I am convinced Solomon knows this story. David's a humble man. When the time was right, he would have... He and Bathsheba... Bathsheba Solomon's mom. Would have shared with their son. And the reason Solomon can pray this way is because... David taught Solomon that God is loving and forgiving. Remember Psalm 32, 1, Blessed or happy is the man whose transgression is not counted against him. As bad as David's failure was, it doesn't have to become the sum total of your life and your legacy. No matter how bad you've messed up, today is the day you can start fresh in Christ. Receive His forgiveness. And yes, people may say, well, who is he or who is she? Aren't they the one? Yes, that was me. And God has forgiven me. And I know it will take time to rebuild your trust and faith in my character and integrity. But I'm a new creation in Christ. Behold, old things are passing away and new things are coming. So Solomon can pray this prayer and mean it. David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. But this word loving kindness, this chesed love he's talking about, this is a special covenantal love that God has with His people, with His elect, with His chosen, with His children. It's, it's an unconditional love. Yes, some of the blessings God promises us are conditional on our obedience. But when God makes covenant with you, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And God had made this promise to King David, made a covenant, and he said there will always be one of your sons on the throne. And Solomon is praying God's words right back to him. Because of your faithfulness, your loving kindness to my Father, you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. What a great way to start your prayer. Acknowledging, Solomon's acknowledging, I didn't deserve to sit on this throne. I didn't attain to it. I didn't earn it. This is all based on your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your promise you made to my Father. We can go to God in prayer, as the book of Hebrews say, boldly approaching the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we can pray God's promises back to Him. And these are promises He will keep. Of course He's going to keep them. What we need to do is align our hearts with God's promises. God, you have promised to be with me as I fulfill the Great Commission. 
to go and make disciples of all nations. And God said, And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. You have promised to be with me in my sanctification, God. Make me like Christ. Make me humble. Make me obedient. God will answer those prayers because He has promised to make us into the image of His Son. Help me to endure trials, God, to persevere in trials. Not take all my trials away. He hasn't promised to take all your trials away. He's promised to be with you in the midst of your trials. So that when you emerge from the trial, your faith will be even stronger. Your dependence on God even stronger. He has promised to provide for all of our needs. Not what we think are our needs. What He knows are our needs. You can pray that with confidence. Give us this day our daily bread. Secondly, in Solomon's prayer, he humbly acknowledges his own inadequacies. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. We, we reckon he's about 20. What 20-year-old would you ever hear say, I'm just a little child? The only time I hear young people admit that is when they want to get out of something they're fully capable of doing. I'm just a kid. I get this as a math teacher. Who am I to be able to do this algebra? You'll figure it out. You should see the things my boys make with Legos and then they film it and they make movies. And then you ask them to do dishes and they turn into idiots, right? (laughs) How does the soap and the water all work together? Who can attain to such knowledge? And like five minutes later, come see this movie I made from scratch. And you're like, what? course, I keep falling for it. Well, let me show you how to do these dishes. It's like Tom Sawyer. Let me show you how to paint the fence. Okay. But here, here Solomon's actually praying, this job is too big for me. I am but a little child. I love this Hebrew euphemism here. I do not know how to go out or come in. Isn't that great? That pretty much covers it, right? By the time you go out the door in the morning and you come in, that covers the whole day. I don't know how to go out or come in. I mean, I've watched my father. I've listened. I've seen a lot. Boy, he's seen a lot, Solomon has. Remember all that we've read. And, and um, I mean, being the king's son, boy, you get, to, you get to see it all, hear it all, experience it all. He had access to the finest education And yet he's humble enough. And this is, this is so huge, I can't overemphasize how big this is. This is an honor-shame society, people. Nobody wants to admit that they're inadequate. It's not a virtue to be humble in an honor-shame society. 
Do you have this kind of humility in your prayers? Do you start the morning saying, I don't even know how to go out or come in, Lord. Apart from you, I'm, I'm lost. I'm the, it's the blind leading the blind down here. If you didn't reveal your will, will to us, I mean, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't that be music to your ears if one of your children came to you and said, honestly, I don't know how to go out or come in, teach me? I mean, what teenager says that? What 20-year-old says that? It takes a lot of, of humility to admit that. And if your children or anyone ever comes to you with this kind of humility, you better respond by saying, you know what, apart from God's Word, I don't know how to go out or come in either. Compared to God, I am but a little child. So why don't you and I go to God's Word together and find the answers from God together? I know you want to be the hero in your family, but God needs to be the hero. Your kids come to you with this kind of humility. Don't waste that rare opportunity and say, well, let me tell you how it's done, son. Because at best, your opinion is just advice. And when... Life gets difficult and they're tempted and you're not around to help them, your advice means nothing. It's just one of hundreds of opinions out there. But when you bring them to God's Word and say, this is the way to live with wisdom. This is the way to find ultimate happiness. This is the way to be pleasing to God. Then when they're on their own and the trials hit, they'll, they'll know where to stand. And if they lose their way, they'll know where to come back. You won't be around forever. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Your servant is in the midst of your people Listen to this language, your servant. It's not my kingdom, my throne, my people. I'm your servant. I'm the slave. You're the master. You're the true king. I just have delegated authority. You've chosen this people, and they are great people, are too many to be numbered or counted. Again, euphemistic for this job is way bigger than I can comprehend. Think about what it would take to to be king. I mean, we all want to be king. What's the line? It's good to be the king. But when you think about what the job is, one comedian said, I think it was Bill Cosby, said, I, I gave up the pants a long time ago. I've seen her job. I don't want it. <laughs> Now, no self-respecting man would take that attitude. But in our flesh, we want to be king because we think it would be great to make all the decisions and make everything turn out the way we like it. And yet, in our moment of sobriety, when we figure out what the job really entails, the responsibility is overwhelming. And so in our flesh, we want all the benefits of leadership without any of the responsibility. 
somebody else lead, somebody else plan, somebody else execute the plan, and I'll sit here and criticize. That's often how things work. But Solomon's prayer here is a breath of fresh air, something we can emulate. Think about how hard this job is. You need to know how the world works, how human nature works, what makes people tick, why they do what they do, how to lead them, how to get them to follow you, not just because you have the title king, but because they respect you. So you don't have to look over your shoulder every day wondering if there's going to be a coup. Keeping everybody happy, productive, industrious, worrying about all of your enemies, making treaties, planning community works projects, executing those projects, delegating authority. How does marriage work, raising children? He hasn't done these things yet. It's an overwhelming task for anyone, let alone a 20-year-old. Likewise, we need to come before the Lord and humbly acknowledge our inadequacies. So what does Solomon ask God for? He, he wants wisdom and understanding. 1 Kings 3.9 So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Remember, judging goes beyond just deciding if someone's guilty or innocent. Although that's a huge responsibility in and of itself. As king, Solomon is the end of the line when it comes to settling disputes. He has the power to declare people guilty or innocent. He literally has people's lives in his hand. He can order an execution. So on top of everything we listed, you must also know the law of God and how to apply it in various situations. Job just got even harder. And on top of it all, everybody's watching to see if the new king has got what it takes. Is this someone we can follow? Is this someone we could trust? The party's over, the coronation's over, all the confetti's been swept up. Now it's time to get down to business. Does he have what it takes? Is this a man we can respect? And the first situation that comes along that God wants us to know about, if you know your Bible, these two harlots, these two prostitutes, they each have a son. Obviously, there's no father around. They're, they're prostitutes. In the middle of the night, and they're staying at the same place, one rolls over her baby and smothers it and wakes up to a dead son. 
She notices the other mother hasn't awakened, and so she quietly switches babies. How terrible. What a cruel thing to do to another human being. And so the other mother wakes up in the morning to this dead son, and she's grieved and distraught. And and at some point she realizes, wait a minute, this doesn't look like my son. Wait a minute, that's my son. Oh no, this one's mine. You must have ruled over your baby. How careless of you. And so this great argument's going to ensue, and certainly word's going to get out. And now many in the kingdom know this story. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's kind of juicy. Like It's human nature to hear something like this and say, Oh, that's so terrible. Tell me more. What happened? It's, it's people's court Jerry Springer material, right? And so, how great in this country, Israel, that God has set up that two prostitutes can get a hearing with the king. They must have worked their way through lower courts and no one could solve the problem. And so, the buck stops with King Solomon, the 20-year-old. And because he's prayed for God to give him wisdom, God grants his prayer. And if you know the rest of the story, you know it's amazing. The rest of you need to read it on your own. And now I'll tell you. (laughs) Spoiler alert, if you don't want me to tell you, plug your ears right now. So he calls for a sword to be brought to him, and he says, I'll cut the baby in half, you each get a half. That's fair. And I'm sure the people in the royal court were like, what? And he, he, he took the sword. Is he really going to cut a baby in half? And he thinks that's fair? No, he has other plans. The true mother says, don't cut the baby in half. Let her have him. And then David immediately knows she's the real mother. Because a real mother would care only for one thing, that my baby lives. We never find out what happens to the other mother. I always kind of wondered what happened to her. So all the people say, wow, look at this king we have. What amazing wisdom. And so now they're just poised as a kingdom, to really fly. And they do. You keep reading through First Kings, and Israel becomes a kingdom like no other. I mean, it, it is like, for a while there, a little picture of what the heavenly kingdom's going to be like. Everybody's happy and productive, and they have peace from their enemies, and they build this glorious temple for God, and there's so much prosperity that Silver becomes worthless. Everybody has gold. So you bring in silver and they're like, oh, what's this? You know, it's like your kids throwing away pennies because they realize, I can't buy anything with this. We should follow Solomon's example and ask God for wisdom. James 1.5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God 
who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is one of these almost rhetorical, facetious pieces of advice. If any of you lacks wisdom, just in case any of you might lack wisdom, we all lack wisdom. Compared to God, we're idiots. Amen. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously. You know what? God loves to give out wisdom. He never gets tired of that prayer request. Now, if he keeps giving you wisdom and you keep squandering it, he might get a little frustrated with you, a little exasperated. You've experienced this maybe as a parent. I, they asked for wisdom. I gave them wisdom. They went and did the opposite. And now they want me to bail them out. Well, guess what our relationship's like with God? They wanted wisdom. I gave them wisdom. They blew it. Now they want me to bail them out. But God loves us and is faithful to keep His covenant with us. And He'll give it to you without reproach. Meaning, He's not going to insult you for asking for wisdom. He's not going to be like, go get your own wisdom. What is wrong with you, people? No, it actually pleases God that we humble ourselves and say, I don't have a lot of wisdom, God. I need your wisdom. Show me how to live my life in a way that will bring you glory and will bring me the happiness my heart desires. Remember, they go together. John Piper used to preach on this all the time, and I think what happens to us is we get excited about a teacher and his teaching, and then it's like, kind of tired of Piper. Who's the new teacher? What's, what's the newest and the latest and greatest? But if you've got some old Piper books, Desiring God, dust them off, read them again. It hasn't gone out of style. What is this wisdom and understanding that the Bible talks about? James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Another great rhetorical, facetious question. (laughs) He's not really expecting anyone to raise their hand and say, Oh, that's me. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge effectively for successful daily living. You get that? The ability to apply knowledge effectively for successful daily living. The knowledge is the understanding. Understanding is someone whose understanding possesses highly skilled, specialized knowledge. Wisdom, then, is taking that knowledge and applying applying it effectively for successful daily living. I underline the words ability and successful for a reason. Get this. Just because you have the wisdom and the knowledge doesn't mean you'll apply it. You have the ability to, But because of our flesh, because of our sin nature and our foolishness, we'll often not apply the wisdom.
Secondly, I've underlined the word successful because apart from God's revelation, we all have a different idea of what successful living is. And our definition of successful living is tied to our happiness. If I asked each of you to define successful living in some way, shape, or form, in your own words, you would describe to me what you think would bring you happiness. And we all have varying degrees of different ideas about successful living because we all have varying degrees of differences about what brings us happiness. Let me give you an example. If we talked about the wisdom for the elders to lead this church, what if one elder's idea of successful church is lots of people? Right? The church growth movement. That's the definition. Look, if we're trying to reach everybody for Christ, the more people we reach, the better. That's our definition of success. And that elder would want us to shape and mold Uh, curriculum and ministries and the preaching in order to just pack the place. Another elder, though, might focus on giving. Another elder might focus on spiritual maturity. I like that elder. I'd rather have a hundred people in the building growing in Christ-likeness than a thousand throwing lots of money in the plate and then going off and living like fools. We have those places. They're called arenas and country clubs. God's church is different. So we'd have to go to God and say, God, what is your definition of a successful church? And then we can be unified around that definition. And then we would apply wisdom and understanding in a proper way. Beloved, you need to understand this. We all do. The world's not getting up in the morning and conspiring to ruin your life and make you unhappy. They're just all getting up wanting to be happy themselves. And they're doing whatever they think is going to bring them that kind of happiness. And boy, when the person you love or the people you're close to or the people you work with are on the same page, it's a beautiful thing. But when your definitions of happiness don't coexist, then you are both going to expend a ton of energy trying to find your own happiness unintentionally undermining the other person's happiness. And they're going to assume you're doing it on purpose. This causes all kinds of splits in in marriages and church splits and breaks apart ministries. The people on the outside who can get a big picture perspective are like, I think you guys want the same thing. But you've convinced each other that you're trying to ruin each other's lives. Undermine each other's happiness. 
Nobody joins a church together to say, you know what, in a few years we're all going to hate each other and rip this place apart. Oh yeah, sign me up. When's the new members class? Nobody goes into marriage saying, you know, you, you get the picture. It's not that people don't want you to be happy. It's that if we don't all agree on God's definition of happiness and how to pursue that happiness through a relationship with God, we will inevitably come to blows. We'll, we'll assume one another is trained to get in the way of our happiness and we'll see people as obstacles instead of treasures to be loved and enjoyed. So what is successful living as defined by God? If man is motivated by happiness, I hope you agree now. I hope I have you on the hook. He will do whatever he thinks will bring about the most amount of happiness. God desires for us to be happy in him, not apart from him. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as Piper says, glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Holiness and happiness are not different goals. God knows that we will find ultimate happiness through holiness. If you have it stuck in your head that, well, I guess... Happiness was for youth. Now that I'm older, I need to grow up and go to church and be holy. That's what Augustine said when he was young. God, make me holy, just not yet. I still want to have some fun. I hope you're finding, as I have found in my Christian walk, that the, the more spiritually mature I become and the closer I become to Christ and the holier I become, the happier I am. I am. You can ask my wife. I'm a much happy person, happier person than when she first met me. Yeah? Yeah. The stuff that used to bother me rolls off my back a lot easier. And I would say the same about her. She's finding contentment in the things that really matter. And when you do that, then you can, you can enjoy the stuff that doesn't matter as much. Oh, that's nice too. It's in its proper place now. I've put all kinds of things in God's place throughout my life. I've tried sports. I've tried... I joined a fraternity in college, trying to fill that emptiness. I want to be popular. Many different careers, and there's been many. And so on and so on. Now I can enjoy my calling and my career I can enjoy sports. Ah, they lost. Oh, well. <laughs> Maybe next time. I can enjoy golf, even when I play cruddy. Because it's beautiful, and I'm with my friends. And I get to do something that 99% of the planet can't do because they don't have the time or the money for it. So why complain about it? Go enjoy it for what it is, and then don't keep score. <laughs> <laughs> If you come into the church and you're thinking, 
Today, I really do want to be happy. I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with the pastor, but if he tells me that I can't have this, 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 or this, I'm not going to be happy. What kind of message is that? I'm telling you this, 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 and this could make you happy, but not ultimately happy. And until you find your ultimate happiness in God, in relationship with Christ, those other things will just can't deliver. We're not saying you have to get those things out of your life unless they've become idols or unless they're sinful. That's another attitude we need to fight against. Some people come to the church and they want to hold on to sinful patterns in their life. They want to add Christ to their sinfulness and then they can't figure out why this whole Jesus thing people told me about isn't working. It's not working because you never really tried it. Successful living, then, is the kind of living that will bring about the deepest and most authentic happiness as defined by God. Successful living is the kind of living that will bring about the deepest, most authentic happiness as defined by God, which is why we like the word blessed more than happiness. Blessed brings God into the equation. Now, happiness, when the Bible was originally written, also included God in the equation. Somehow, over the ages, we've separated God from happiness. Blessedness is happiness. The Hebrew and Greek words that are usually translated blessed actually mean happy. Asher in the Hebrew, makarios in the Greek. Happy. They mean happy. Biblical happiness is the soul-satisfying position and feeling. Get that? Position and feeling. It's the whole enchilada. I know I'm happy because I'm in Christ and God is my greatest treasure and I get to spend eternity with Him. And heaven's going to be so much better than this planet. You get all the good stuff from this planet without all the bad stuff and so much more. That's positional happiness. But God also wants the feeling, the emotion to come with it. This glorifies God. It's not glorifying to God to say, yeah, I know. I'm blessed. How are we going to evangelize the world with that attitude? If, if you told your spouse, you know, marrying you was the happiest day of my life. I'm just not feeling it. She's, she's not going to be impressed. That's not going to bless her. But the problem is that we pursue the feeling before we pursue the positional happiness. We're like, I, I, I can't really think about how I should be positionally happy in Christ because I'm just not feeling it right now. And as soon as I f- get those happy feelings back, then I'll, I'll start thinking about how I should be positionally happy in Christ. I got news for you. You're not going to get there. You're just not going to get there. And if you do get some fleeting happy uh, feelings of happiness 
I can almost guarantee you're not going to spend them on pursuing Christ. You're going to say, ooh, what just made me happy? Let's go do more of that. And eventually you'll get right back into that, that cycle of despair and depression. Start with the positional happiness. In Christ, I am forgiven and loved for all eternity. No one can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I am God's chosen and beloved. I'm a co-heir with Christ. He's preparing a, a room for me in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. All these things are positionally true. And they should bring ultimate happiness. If they're not, you just haven't dwelt on them long enough. And he says, if I will spend my days serving him, caring about other people, sharing with them the good news, I will have a blessed life. And what ends up happening is when you focus on that, one day you kind of wake up and you go, oh, you know what? We got a pretty nice house. And God's provided us with some pretty neat stuff. And everything gets put in its proper place and you can start to enjoy things that God intended to be secondary modes of happiness because you've no longer made it the primary source of your happiness. I call it getting happiness through the back door. Oh, don't look now. I think you got all those things that you've been wanting. But now you know that they pale in comparison to the real treasure. And those things might go away tomorrow, but this treasure never is going to go away. Biblical happiness is a soul-satisfying position and feeling of peace, security, contentment, thankfulness, prosperity, hope, and joy. In short, it's the abundant life Jesus promised through faith in Him. The abundant life Adam and Eve had and traded for a lie and ended up with death, separation, Misery, shame, guilt, trying to hide from God and hide from one another. Coming to Christ, as theologians like to call it, is reversing the curse. We're getting back to the paradise that our first parents forfeited. How did they forfeit it? By thinking they could find a better happiness than God provided apart from Him and obeying and trusting His laws. So how do you get back? You do the reverse. Stop listening to what your flesh is telling you will bring you happiness and put all your faith and trust in this God who knows you, created you, knows you better than you know yourself, knows what will make you happy better than you know. I know that's audacious. If anyone else on this earth told me, oh, that won't make you happy, let me tell you. You know, you order off the menu and, and your spouse goes, you know, no, let me order for you. I know what you like. That, that, that would be crazy. I got you this for Christmas. It's not really what I wanted. Yeah, but you don't know what you want. This is what you want. Only God can really say that and we can trust that He knows. Even if everything inside of us is going, eh, I'm not so sure, God. 
No, really, He knows. And He desires for you to be happy. Why would He come down and die for you if He doesn't want you to be happy? That's, go- that's a lot. That he died for you so you could be miserable? Discontent? Unsatisfied? Empty? How do we find this happiness? Psalm 1. Blessed, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Stop listening to the people who say they know how to find happiness, but don't have it. Because those people are searching for happiness apart from God. The happy man doesn't listen to those people. Stop listening to Madison Avenue. All the advertisers. Buy this, it'll make you happy. Buy this, it'll make you fulfilled. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. James 1.12, Blessed or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When life gets a little hard, you don't say, Okay, God, it's not working. The happiness plan, not working. I'm going back to my own plan. No, that man won't find happiness. Happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And God gives us these trials in our life really as a blessing. Make sure you're not putting your trust in anything other than God. Let me take that thing away from you for a little bit that you thought was bringing you ultimate happiness. So you can see that that thing is not the source of ultimate happiness. Only God is. Well, how do I know I've put my faith in God as my ultimate happiness? God has to put you through trials. Let's test you. Let's take away some of your money. Let's, let's bring some trouble in some of your relationships. Maybe you lose that job that you put all your security in. Stock market crashed and you lost half your 401k. Is that where your happiness was? All kinds of trials God allows us to go through so we know that our ultimate happiness is really rooted and grounded in Him. How is wisdom from God connected to our happiness? Does the Bible make that connection? It certainly does. And of all people, Solomon makes the connection for us in Proverbs. Read Proverbs 8 this week. Write that down, Proverbs 8. Actually, Proverbs like 1 through 8 talks so much about wisdom, but the whole culmination of the teaching comes in Proverbs 8. And... Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. And he's, he wrote the Proverbs to teach his sons. I think this is brilliant. What are young men thinking about all the time? Women. They should be thinking about wanting wisdom. So we'll just personify wisdom as a woman. And say, you want a great woman? Let me introduce you to a woman named Wisdom. Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? There's that wisdom and understanding. And you get to the end of the chapter and he says, Blessed, happy is the man who listens to me. Me being wisdom. Watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. 
For he who finds me finds wisdom, finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me actually love death. You hate wisdom, you're rejecting life and happiness. Another question then is, how do we pursue this happiness if we're sinners? If we blow it, is that it? It's over? No chance of happiness? No, remember, David tells us in Psalm 32, how happy, how blessed, how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. If you fall off the path and you start pursuing happiness sinfully, you can get back on the right path through confession, repentance. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Get back on the path to doing things God's way. Get back to prayer, back to studying His Word, back to serving in His church, back to meeting other people's needs. And that happiness will return. Remember, again, just because we have wisdom doesn't mean we always apply it. You come every Sunday to hear wisdom from God, you read His Word, you go to Bible studies, you talk to mature people in the faith, but doesn't mean you're going to apply any of it. What guarantees will apply it? Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you don't truly believe in your heart that God is omniscient, He knows everything, He has all wisdom, He created you, He knows you better than you know yourself, He knows the true path to happiness, if you don't have that fear in the Lord, you won't listen to wisdom. You have to humble yourself before the Lord and say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You know. And when He tells you, you'll be tempted to be like, I don't think so. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments, even when you don't feel like doing them, even when they don't make sense to you. His praise endures forever. Lots of times people will come to me and they say, you need wisdom from God. Well, what's holding you back? Well, I know you're going to tell me to forgive and repent and serve. So if you already know, why don't you go do it? It's because they don't actually believe those things are going to bring happiness. The connection then between our salvation and our ultimate happiness. Maybe you've never thought of happiness in, in terms of your salvation. But let me, let me show you this morning. When we come to Christ and we place our faith in Him, His death and resurrection, and we're justified and God declares us righteous in Christ, what He's forgiving us from is rejecting God as our source of life and happiness and for pursuing happiness sinfully by breaking God's commands. We know sin is rebellion, but maybe you've never heard rebellion couched in the context of happiness. 
And because we haven't taught this, we come to think that, well, I guess happiness isn't something I'm supposed to want. I need to come to God for holiness. No, holiness means trusting that God is the ultimate source of happiness. So in our sanctification, that's the process where we we begin to apply God's Word by the power of the Holy Spirit to stop pursuing happiness apart from God and start trusting in God's character and in His promises and in His love to motivate us to pursue God and obey His commands. Why? As the key to our ultimate happiness. You mean by obeying God, trusting in Him and glorifying Him and arranging my life intentionally to obey His commands and glorify Him, I'll I'll actually be happy? Yes! Otherwise, it's not good news. Otherwise, it's, well, you get God and you're not going to hell, but your life's going to be boring at best, miserable at worst. What kind of good news is that? You get God and you enter into His fullness. All the happiness. In fact, it's better happiness than you've ever imagined. This is something we can get excited about and something we can be excited to share because I guarantee you'll have plenty of opportunities to meet people who are unhappy. And you can tell them and show them where that ultimate happiness is to be found. Let's skip to the last two slides, Keturah. Solomon ends up asking for the right thing. And because he puts the most important thing first, God is pleased. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies. That's the big three, people. That's what people think are going to bring happiness. I want long life and beauty that never fades. Or I want riches and all the power that comes with it. Or just get rid of all the people who are getting in the way of my happiness. Instead, you ask yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And, but wait, there's more. I mean, that that should be enough. But God isn't a God of enough. He's a God of abundant, overflowing, my cup is so full I can't hold it anymore kind of God. And I'm not preaching health, wealth, and prosperity. God says, I will also give you what you have not asked. I'll give you riches and honor so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days, if if you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And that's euphemistic for you'll have this long, prosperous life. So God allows Solomon to conditionally enjoy all these secondary pleasures because he asked for the right thing. All these other things that people think 
are the ultimate source of pleasure. God says, now that you know that's, that's just the garnish, I'll give you those things too. And he lived happily ever after. Unless you know the rest of the story, it's, he started putting second things first. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you've placed in our heart this desire for happiness. And yet we are also humble that we don't know the way to our own happiness. We've lost the way. Thank you, good shepherd, for pursuing the lost sheep and bringing us back to the sheepfold where there's green grass and safety and joy and we're known by name where no one can separate us from your love and your blessing. Forgive us in Christ for pursuing happiness apart from Christ, apart from you, God. And convince us from your word and by your Holy Spirit that all that you say you are and all that you say you've done and all that you say you will do is true and we can take it to the bank and root and ground our happiness in you and your promises. Do this for your glory, God. Make Country Oaks a church filled with people who are so happy the world can't help but ask and that we would be ready with an answer for the hope that is within us. And that answer will be Jesus. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.